0: Alright, if you've got your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. This is actually going to be our last sermon in Luke for a little while as we sort of enter into our holiday season. We, we, uh, we focus in on, on uh, Reformation and All Saints themes, and then we're into Thanksgiving, and then we're into Advent, and then we're into Christmas Tide, and so it'll be probably um, the early part of mid part of January before we are back in Luke um, at the earliest, and and I haven't quite decided whether or not we may in January do what we have done. In a few of our previous years, where we jump into the Old Testament for a short amount of time, I'm not sure yet, so we might hold that off till till we get to to L- the Lenten season, but we'll see so um, but this will be our last message in in Luke um, for for the next couple of months. so um, we're just looking at we're just looking at two verses tonight. Luke 16 and 17, it says, and this is Jesus speaking, he says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again we we come before you and and give you thanks um, for this beautiful fall day um, that you have given us. God, um, we see your glory in in the beauty uh, of creation, God. We see your creative power, your artistic um, uh, 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 ability, God. We see the the design and the order that you have set the seasons and. Uh, and and the the ecosystem of of our world, God, and we watch all these things play out, God. And and if we if our hearts are rightly focused, God, they turn to you in in praise and wonder for for the beauty of the created order. Um, we thank you for living in a part of the country that is that is so beautiful, and and um, the blessings that we get to see as the seasons change. Father, we uh, we pray. God, this Sunday, particularly this Reformation Day Sunday, um, God, that your gospel message um, has gone forth today throughout Blunt County. We pray that you would minister um, through the churches and ministries of, of every um, Christ-centered, Bible-believing church in Blunt County. God, that you would um, touch hearts through the ministries um, represented by those churches. God that the gospel would be preached that people would be called to faith and repentance that they would be called to holiness and and sacrifice and service as as um God that we attempt to live faithful lives in Blount County. Father we ask that your spirit would go before us and that you would soften um the hardened hearts, God, that you would till up the soil and prepare it for the seed of the gospel being um, planted in, in that good earth that God will not bear, uh, thorns. Um, God will allow for roots and God will allow for fruit, um, that people's lives would not only be changed, um, but that they would grow and they would, um, God bear, uh, spiritual fruit in their lives and in this community. Father, we pray this each week. Um, We pray for revival. We ask that that revival begin in our own hearts, it begin in our own families, that it begin in our own congregation, and that it spread from there into our community, to our country, and to our world. We cannot do this on our own, and we cannot do it without your uh, working in our lives. And so we pray that you would do that. Um, Draw us to yourself, draw us to your word, convict us of our sin, and lead us into service. We thank you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so um, so today, what we've done the last couple of Reformation, every year on, on Reformation Sunday, the Sunday that falls closest to uh, October 31st, we celebrate and we remember and we sort of focus our sermon on the theme of, of the Reformation. So the reason why that is, most of you I'm sure are aware, particularly if you've been here for the last few years, is that on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, uh, went to the, uh, cathedral church in, in Wittenberg, Germany, and he nailed a, a, a document, a manifesto, um, called the 95 Theses to the church door. That was a common way of announcing something and making a declaration in certain ways. Um, that event, um, that 95 Theses, was a series of of, of statements about inconsistencies and, and corruption and, and false understandings and teachings that Martin Luther saw within the Roman Catholic Church. Um, while probably it wasn't an actual beginning to the Protestant Reformation, it is certainly the symbolic beginning to the Reformation. That occurred on October 31st, the day that we typically think of as Halloween, um, but but that the church remembers as Reformation Sunday or Reformation Day, um, and so each year we focus on a theme, um, typically uh, connected to that in some way. One year we talked about the idea of *simper reformanda*, that the church is always reforming according to the Word of God. Um, other years we have talked about um, *sola fide*, um, the 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 doctrine of. Uh, faith alone. We've talked about grace alone. Probably, I think the first year we were, we, we, we were here, we talked about, um, grace alone. And so it's kind of been my intention to uh, kind of make our way through all of these, 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 um, statements that we call the five solas. Okay. Um, and this year we are on, we are talking about the idea of, um, soli deo gloria. That is glory to God alone as one of the five great solas, the five onlys, the five alones of the Protestant Reformation. Now, here's the interesting thing, I think, or one of the interesting things about um, the idea of the doctrine um, or the statement of soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. With the other four solas, you see a more easy connection for why that was um something that the Roman Catholic Church was in some way didn't believe, right? You see it pretty clearly. So, for example, um, sola fide, faith alone, okay? That stood in direct oppo- opposition to the works-based sacramentalism of the Catholic Church. Grace alone um, stood in direct contradiction to the idea that we get grace from, we get this merit from the saints and, and, and we, we, we fill up our, our bank account, spiritual bank account from the extra merit left over from these saintly people who just had merit to spare. And that's how we make ourselves right with God. And so we, we said, no, it is by grace alone, God's good favor alone that we are made right with him. Scripture alone, right? Sola scriptura as opposed to the authority of popes and councils. Um, and, and creeds and things like that throughout the history of the church. Um, in Christ alone, right? That is to say, Christ alone as our salvation, apart from the church um, in specific, uh, apart from the again the merit of saints and these different things like that. And so, it's easier to see how the five, the four solas that we just talked about disagree with the Roman Catholic Church. But then we come to this one. It's solely Deo Gloria, the glory to God alone. And here's the reality. Um, on the surface, I think the Roman Catholic Church would have agreed um, with the, the, the idea of glory to God alone. They would have agreed that God's glory was of the utmost importance. But what the reality of the church was, is that there was a pervasive humanism that worked through the, the preaching and the teaching and the ministry and the and the authority and the politics of the Roman Catholic Church at the time. And so we can talk about the word humanism. Humanism can get applied in various ways in, at different times and in different ways. But broadly, it is the tendency to consider human beings as the starting point whether that's for morality or or philosophical inquiry or or uh, the nature of society or whatever. It's to start with people instead of starting somewhere else, particularly with the glory of God. And so it's in that context um, that the significance and the emphasis of soli deo gloria, glory to God alone, was championed by the Reformers, all right? Now now here's the thing that I'm trying to do today, and I have I have bitten off more than I can chew, um, even though we have this super short passage, because I'm trying to bring a bunch of stuff in at the same time. So for one, I'm trying to comment on this section of Luke 16, verses 16 and 17. Okay. And so we're gonna see that um, I wanted to get that passage in because it really connects to the section we're just finishing up. Um, and I didn't want to hold off and wait till three months down the road where we kind of went back to it. So I wanted to comment on it, and I noticed that there are some particular things that we can do in connection with commemorating the the Reformation Day and this idea of Soli Deo Gloria, the way that passage mixes in there. Um, at the same time, I've been reading a, a book entitled Soli Deo Gloria. Um, it was from a couple years back during the 500th anniversary. Um, it's by a, a professor named David Van Druden, who is at Westminster Seminary in California. The book's called God's Glory Alone, and he zooms in on a couple of particular areas as to uh, why the doctrine of Soli Deo Gloria is particularly important for us in our t- current context, okay? So does that make sense? I'm trying to pull in a couple of different ideas and then, and then sort of squash them in and make them all fit or whatever. And so I'm not sure how good a job I did. So we'll, you, But you can kind of get those ideas in your head and, and see, try to, that'll maybe help you see where I'm trying to go. But again, we, we have these, these, these two lines, um, and, and the beginning, the first passage in Luke chapter 16, the beginning of 16 is pretty, I think, straightforward in, in what is it is teaching us. Again, it says, the law and the prophets were until John, and since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. It's the second part that's a little difficult to understand, and everyone forces his way into it. At least that's one translation of it. Now, again, that first clause or those first two clauses are, are, I think, pretty straightforward. They are referencing the way God has engaged with humanity in his sovereign plan through the millennia. Okay, So the first part says, before the coming of Jesus, God communicated with us primarily on the basis or through the law and the prophets. That's how God talked to us. Okay, That was his revelation to us. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says essentially the same thing. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Okay? Pretty pretty simple um, concept. And then what we see in this passage is that John is essentially the culmination of that. John, uh, and it's a kind of a neat way to think about John, I think, John becomes the ultimate prophet. Okay. He is the last prophet and he is the ultimate prophet. He is the most prophet-like of all the prophets. Okay. In his ministry, in, in his, in his demeanor and like everything about him, you remember the whole camel hair and the eating honey and locusts and all those things like that out of the wilderness, preaching a message of repentance. He is the most prophety of all the prophets and he's the last prophet. Okay. And then it tells us, that at, then comes the time of, of the good news being preached, the gospel. And again, Hebrews chapter one, verse two says the exact same thing. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he also created the world, right? And so with the coming of Christ, the pronouncement of the good news, um, we have entered into a gospel age where we were in a law prophetic age before we have entered into a gospel era where God is engaging with mankind primarily on the basis of his son and of the gospel. Okay. Now pretty easy, right? But then that last clause is a weird clause. Okay. Because of the wording and what it, what it seems to mean. We already talked about the fact that chapter 16 of the gospel of Luke is the hardest chapter in the whole book. It is the weirdest. It is the most complex and difficult to, to figure out what's going on there. And six. 16 verse 16 is, is, is part of the reason why it's difficult. Okay. What does it mean when it says, and everyone forces his way in? So again, to cut the cut, the, the building up to it. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. So linguistically, it's a weird word. Okay, And this is the reason why, because it has an active and a passive kind of sense to it. And if you have different Bibles and you start looking at different translations from different versions, you notice some of the things. So, for example, let me give you a a few of them in, in different translations. The ESV says everyone forces his way into it. The King James says everyone is pressing into it. The Holman Christian Standard, everyone is strongly urged to enter. American standard. Every man entereth violently into it. The contemporary English version. Everyone is trying hard to get into it. Okay, and so you notice that these are we. There, there's a, there's some ambiguity there, right? There is a passive sense to this word that we find here, but there's an active sense too, and it could be translated legitimately in either way. Almost as if to say, one version of it says, "You are the one." violently pushing in and then there's another way that no you are the one who is being violently pushed in okay and again it's it's sort of a difficult passage to translate because of this this ambiguous tense and meaning of the word that may be more information about that word than than you're interested in but here's here's my suggestion to you i would say that probably the holy spirit picked that word for a, a purpose right it could have used, the Holy Spirit could have used a a more clear word, and yet he chose to use that word. The ambiguity there is probably something that's significant. And what I think it points to is this, this word of violence, this word of force, this word of being pressed into something or pressing ourselves into it, to being forced or forcing our way in, is pointing us to an idea that, that is that is this, that the gospel, the gospel that is being preached is a, it is a moment of conflict. Okay. The gospel is a, is a, it's a breaking point. Okay. It is jumping off a cliff. The gospel is a a why in the road and you have to pick one way or the other. And there is something that happens when we are confronted with that gospel moment. Something has to happen in us that in in a way is an act of, of, It's not just easy, right? We don't just sort of float into the gospel, right? Like something has to happen. We have to submit to it. We have to sometimes, sometimes that submission and you, some of your testimonies can attest to this, right? Sometimes the gospel feels like it crushes us at first, right? Like the good news, we are, we are, we are broken before we receive the gospel. Okay. There, there is a, a weird reality that's going on here, right? And I think it's just in general kind of pointing to the idea that man, when we come to the gospel, we have to jump off a cliff. There is a, 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 a moment of, of acknowledgement and realization and urgency and, and the radical nature of that moment that, that something happens there, okay? The gospel is calling us to something. It is calling us away from something. We have to break ties and walk away from something else. We have to press in to something new. All of those ideas are bouncing around in that passage. And the word, um, the, the reason why that word is chosen is because the world, I think, is hesitant to hear that kind of message. It doesn't want to be put in a situation where it has to make that kind of decision. And yet that's the reality of it. The world is bent away from God's glory. And that's how it ties back into this idea of God's glory. right? God's glory is seen in the fact by the the way that the gospel, we have to make a, a decision. We have to choose something when we come to the gospel. And yet the world is bent away from God's glory. It doesn't want to have anything to do with God's glory. It's not interested in making that kind of decision. And and there's a particular reason for that, or a couple particular reasons, especially for us in, in modern American culture. Okay. And this is where I kind of tie into, to um, Dr. Van Druden's um, um, comments. And he talks about the fact that the, the most significant things about our culture, the reasons why we don't see or are interested in the glory of God are a function of our own narcissism and a function of our own distraction, all right? We are a culture and a people who are defined by our narcissism and our distraction, probably more so in some ways than any other time in history, although certainly people have always had to deal with these things. So let's talk about that idea of distraction first. Um, The particular way that distraction affects the key aspects of the way that we acknowledge God's glory. Prayer, worship. How does our distraction hold us back from these central aspects of the way that we acknowledge God's glory? Because think of think of Psalms chapter one, okay? Psalms one. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And this is what verse two says. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates both day and night, right? Consider what it means for a second to meditate on the word of God day and night, because here's what I think it doesn't mean. It's not talking about the fact that you were seated, seated, you know, somewhere on your knees um, with a Bible in front of you, praying day and night, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's That's not, the picture, right? He is, that when that psalm was written, it was being written into an agricultural uh, subsistence kind of farming world, right? You know what you do in subsistence agriculture? You work sundown to sun up all day long just to survive, right? There wasn't a whole lot of time for, you know, stopping and sitting leisurely under a tree and, and, and reading um, the scriptures or something like that. I don't think he's talking about that kind of meditation. But, but here's what he probably is, um, recognizing. You know what you did have in those kind of cultures? You had time to think. All right. As you did your menial tasks, as you worked with other people and had conversations, um, as you're plowing or, or whatever, you had time to think. You had time to wander, let your mind wander and to wonder. Um, about things. You had time to imagine. You had time to engage your thoughts, introspection, all these different things. Think of how little silence that we have in our lives now. How, how, how there's almost no point in our lives where we have silence. Instead, every moment of our lives is taken up by noise, music or TV or podcasts or streaming or social media. Um, not to mention the normal demands of, of work and, and things like that, activities with our kids and families and everything like that, okay? Now, here's the deal. I'm not saying that any of those things are necessarily bad, okay? Um, in fact, if we're listening to beneficial things, there there is a place for that, right? It can be edifying. But I'm also saying that what we have done has gotten, there's an imbalance here. Okay? Because while we have made time to pour some things that could be edifying into our, our lives, we have also those things have become, in many cases, a distraction. There's certainly a distraction when I think about things like prayer in our prayer lives, right? We we have no time to, to sit and stop and focus and think um and, and reflect on God's glory. There's always something else pulling at us same thing's true when we come to worship, man. I guarantee the case is that for many of us, as we start to sing and think, man, our mind, our, our mouth is mouthing those words, but, man, our thoughts are in a million different places, going over a million different things. We talk about the, people talk about, they brag about being able to multitask, right? Nobody really multitasks, okay? That's not what your brain does. Your brain doesn't do multiple things at the same time. You know what it does? It goes, this thing, this thing, this thing, this thing. This thing, this thing. That's not good for us, okay? And so people brag, well, I'm a great multitasker. No, you're great at dealing with distraction is essentially what you would say, okay? You are great at never focusing on one thing, which then you start going, well, it doesn't sound as quite as impressive when I say it that way. Um, but that's the world we live in. In fact, I think probably there'd be a lot of people who'd say Man, that's one of the key skills of, of modern life, is, is to be able to multitask, but maybe that's not a good thing. Regularly before service, we pray that God would remove distractions, right? We do that all the time. We pray that he would come and help us to worship. Rightly, And sometimes I worry that maybe you're misunderstanding what I mean by that. I'm not trying to say that God is unconcerned with the stuff that's going on in your life. He's not unconcerned with your anxiety or your distractions um, or or the difficulties that you're going through. That's not why we're asking him to remove those distractions. Why we're asking him to remove them is because the only way that those things are going to be addressed is if you get a glimpse of the glory of God right? Is if you can have an encounter with God and recognize who he is and recognize the gospel and recognize his love. And the problem is, is you're never going to be able to do that. If you, if you're here and your brain is always going a hundred miles a minute on to any number of things. And again, I'm, we're all there. We all do that. Okay. And it could be anxiety. It could be sorrow. It could be busyness. It could be you're behind. It be, it'd be because you've got too much on your plate. But the thing that would be most helpful is for you to get a vision of God's glory and his sovereignty in, in a time of worship. Love that would meet every sorrow, sovereignty that would mitigate every anxiety in your life, and yet we have a hard time doing that because we are so distracted. And so here's something to say. Cultivate daily times um, where we can just be quiet. Not connected. Not multitasking. We can foster the things that encourage us in our um, recognizing the glory of God. Foster gathering with other people. Um, foster conversation about those things. Foster times of in-depth reading or study of, of God's word. Foster Sabbath observance, Right? Again, I'm, I don't want to get into the, 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 the legality of those things or whatever in terms of our, our, our moral accountability to God, but to recognize that God made the Sabbath for us, right? We've read that in the Gospel of Luke. He made this as a day for you to take a break and to separate yourself from all the day-in, day-out, work-world kind of stuff and have a day to clear your mind and focus on Him. He gave it to us as a blessing, and yet, man, I think we almost use it like, man, I, I'm wasting half a day, you know, because I can't do all the other important things that I have to get done on this day. So, so we live in this world of distraction. We live in an age of narcissism, and that's the other thing. A society that continues to descend into its own problems and predilections, its own lusts, and its own lives, and that is the all-encompassing thought of everything they do, is a society that's defined by narcissism. And if that was true, which I'm sure it was in some ways in the late medieval Europe, it is tenfold true now. Because we are ever more secular, ever more worldly, and if you think about it, and man, we talk about this a lot, but just because it's in the air that we breathe, man, all of these things that we are dealing with in our culture, the identity issues are a function of this narcissism. Our race, obsession with race and gender and nationality and things like that is a function of our narcissism. Our political obsessions. I think there's no probably better word to describe the behavior of both the left and the right in politics than the word narcissism all right and whether that is it is um the the bullying and the mocking that we see or the constantly being offended and having to cancel and things like that Man, that's narcissism it is this idea of me and my stuff and focusing and everybody else should line up with me and and, and whatever our image obsession is a function of that whether it's beauty Or cool, or health, or um, whatever—it's our own narcissism, right? Uh, Probably most or or many of you have have, are sort of aware of what's going on with Facebook over the last few weeks about these, you know, uh, leaked memos about how they knew that it, it and Instagram and these other entities, social media entities, they knew that what they were doing was harmful. They had studies, internal studies, that demonstrated that they were hurting particularly young women's lives, that these things were leading to, to psychological issues and, and suicide and depression and anxiety. They knew all these things, right? Um, and they didn't do anything about them. Well, here's the deal, folks. You did it too. I did it too. I'm doing it now, okay? Was anybody confused about the awfulness of social media? Right? Did you need a secret leaked document to tell you that this thing was a train wreck? You didn't. You all know it. I know it. And guess what? Man, I got an Instagram account and I got a Facebook account and I keep on using them. Why? Well, because I got to be connected and I want to be able to post pictures of my cool Halloween costume and then everybody likes it. All right? Uh, which it was awesome. About. Um, right? But that's what what we're talking about, right? We want some sort of, I don't know, affirmation. We need that, man. I appreciate being around old people that don't care about any of those things anymore, right? Like, I appreciate being around grumpy old men who are like, "Ah, I'm just going to say whatever I think, and I don't care if everybody hates me, right? Like, I appreciate that because it is the opposite with our generation, my generation anyway, and the ones below us, is there is an obsession with image and cool and being, being whatever, man, we are a narcissistic people. We are and and not without getting into politics or whatever, man. We are at a point in our culture where we're like, man, I don't care if it costs us the future. I don't care if it costs us Western civilization. I don't care if it costs us Christianity. I want everybody to focus on my little nice, comfortable thing that I've got going on here and to hell with the future. That's where we're at in our culture. And again, as a function of our own narcissism. And yet God's word places all the focus, all the center of gravity, not on our experience of anything, but on God's glory over and over again. It seems to be particularly unconcerned with what we think about ourselves um, or our own definitions or our own expectations. Instead, it says, no, I'm God. And who is like me among the gods? Who is like God in his majestic holiness? Awesome in praises, working wonders. The Lord reigns. He is clothed in majesty. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate all the days of my life. Those are the kind of things that the Bible talks about when it talks about what's the central idea, what is the thing that we should all be focused around. It's the glory of God. The glory of God stands above everything else, above all those distractions, above all that narcissism, even though both of those things will hinder us from seeing it. And the reality is, is this, man, all of those things are fleeting. All of that distraction narcissism, man, it is passing away. It's smoke. It is vapor. And that's what that final passage and in, in verse 17 draws us back to, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Okay, now we could talk about that in different ways. We could zoom in on this idea of the law and what is Jesus saying? Is he, is he talking about how the law and the gospel engage with each other? I want to take it a little more broadly that, just to say this. Those lines are, are connected to the previous idea In that, well, I think the point is that while these eras are shifting between law and gospel, um, we must not think that God is shifting, okay? God is not a God who just sort of goes, you know what, I had an idea about the way to do things back in the Old Testament times, and I got bored with that. So I decided to try this whole Jesus thing. And you know what? Maybe down the road a little bit, I'll decide that the whole Jesus thing wasn't it either, and I'll do something else. I thought people should be this kind of moral in one time, but I'm going to change all that one day, and we're just going to grow past that and do whatever we want to in another way. That's not what he says. What does he say? He said, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away. Think about what that means. It is easier for heaven and earth that the ground and the planet that we walk on to just vaporize and disintegrate into mist. Yeah, that would be easier than for one dot, okay? One iota, one inflection on a letter to be taken from the word of God. Why? Because the word of God stands forever. Because God never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The word that we use often in in theological context is God is immutable. That's probably not a word that we we use a lot anymore, but God is an immutable God. He does not change and he is not affected by things on the external that could change him. And the reality is, is that that is the center of our lives, the unchanging glory of God and not all this temporal fleeting distractions and narcissism that are around us. Man, and it's helpful to stop and think about the, the, the ephemeral nature of those things. Sometimes it's helpful to stop and consider about how much time we spend in any given week on various things. Okay. To just stop and man, we've talked about this before, but to just get a chart and, and look at your week and then realize how much time you spend in these different activities. Get that little app on your phone. I don't think it's an app anymore that tells you how long you've been on social media that day or how long your phone has been on that day and pay attention to it. Think about how much we are just consumers. We consume and we consume and we consume, right? I did a little math this week. This is sort of a side point, but it illustrates it a little bit. So the, there was a number and it said, the average person uh, earns $1.7 million in their lifetime. So if you work 40 years, you on average, the average person earns $1.7 million. When they retire, they have $65,000 in savings, okay? So if you do the math on that, you know what that means? It means you have consumed like 98% of everything you've ever done. Meaning you ate it and you passed it out and it's gone. It's waste. It's gone. There's nothing to it. Okay. Now obviously that's part of the way that life works, right? That's what we do with food. Okay. That's what we do with energy. That's what we do with all these different things, right? But it is something to think about to say, and how much of our lives are just thrown away on things that don't make any difference, things that are fleeting. Consider how the amount of time you spend on those things affects your priorities, your values, your expectations, your happiness, your success, your fulfillment. And the funny thing is, is man, on all those things, those issues that are so central to your life The reality is, is they'll be silly in a few years. You'll think they're stupid and you can't believe how much you worried about them, okay? And if you don't believe me, just think about when you were in high school and think about the things that were life ending events when you were in high school and that you just didn't know how you were gonna get around it. And you look back and you go, man, that's not even a blip in my mind. Like who cares that Susie didn't like me or whatever else, right? Like who, none of these things make any difference. That's how most of the decisions in our life are going to be. Or how about this? Those causes that you are so fired up about right now in a generation are going to be passe. People are going to be like, man, who even cares about that stuff anymore? And in fact, the things that you will look be looked at by your grandchildren and judged about, and your, your grandchildren will be like, oh, you know, grandma... And Granddaddy Bramblet, they were so clueless will be things that you haven't even considered right now. You're not even thinking about them because they're not even on your radar. And yet you put so much energy into them right now. The things that you spend so much time on now will be a pile of junk in the corner of your garage probably within the next two or three years. Right, Something that you're just like, man, I'm sold out. I love doing this. So excited about it. I want to put energy into this thing. And the answer is you're probably going to be really annoyed that you have to spend a Saturday cleaning all that stuff and putting it on the curb in just a couple of years from now. John, First John 2, 16, where we were, were close to a minute ago. For all that is in the world... The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So again, and in closing, God's word has not changed one iota. God's glory has not changed, and it will last forever. And if you know Christ, it will be the sun that you orbit around for eternity. God's glory will be at the center of everything we are and everything we do for all of eternity. So then you say, you know what? Probably it should be now. We should take steps in our lives to put God's glory at the center of our daily lives right now. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, your goodness and your glory are so much greater than than the trifles that we toy with um, on a daily basis. God, you have given us uh, all kinds of blessings. God, you put things into the world for our enjoyment and for our provision. Um, God, you are not um, a God of asceticism who who expects us to and desires for us to 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 live in a hole in a desert somewhere um as as some people throughout church history have have uh, attempted and yet god it is it is so easy for us to make idols out of everything god one of the reformers has said our hearts are idol factories that we can take a good gift that you have given us and we can turn it into an idol very quickly. God, we can make it the center of our lives and push you to the periphery. Father, we ask that you would help us to, God, put away those distractions, that you would help us to God, decentralize that narcissism that places us at the center of everything. And that we would regain a vision of your goodness and your glory, that it would be the guiding principle of our lives, that it would be the thing that we look to, that everything else is based off of, the thing that we make decisions by, God, that gives us our values, that all of our life would revolve around soli deo Gloria the glory of God alone. Father, we cannot do that on our own. We are foolish and short-sighted. We need your spirit working in us. We need your word working in us. God, we need your church working in us. We ask that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand
1: and sing the closing song. A mighty fortress is our God, above who never fails. I help her here To age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled, should Darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His lips...
0: Amen. Good to see you. Glad you're here. Um, happy Reformation Day. Um, uh, be safe tonight. Um, if you're if you're going out or going around, there'll be um, you know little kids walking across streets and and. Uh, foolish people out partying and stuff like that. So just take a little extra care tonight, and uh, we'll see you next week. Um, hear this benediction before you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, turn his face towards you, and give you peace. See you next week.
2: I mean, I'm on this back on why it was like, right Yeah, two long and then one v square. And then two rows of that. And then there's a. There. Yeah. And And <laughs> a. Yeah. <laughs> 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 we well, When you're taking the you know,
0: some
2: care church. And yeah, you love yeah. <laughs> Students, right. Yep. Yeah. So, i <laughs> uh,
0: Actually, doing taking a day of rest. Okay. Yeah. We actually did a
2: spiritual discipline for the Redeemer, and the first one we talked about was Sabbath. And then we did like three different sessions on different kinds of prayer that you can start incorporating in your life. So everything you're talking about tonight is like, oh yeah, that all sounds very familiar. what we do is we get together as a class after we've read a little bit about each discipline and then we try to practice